This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Persuading Your Fellow Players. Robert Anton Wilson. The Curse of the Not Bronfmans. And Nasara. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm. So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh, yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. So it's time, uh, as we begin our podcast, for the most beginningest of segments, the Preamble Hut, in which we briefly talk about a thing, possibly of a plug, or some other sort of uh, crucial alert into what we're up to. And in this case, Ken, you would like to tell us about a Kickstarter that you were one of many stalwart contributors to. So many stalwart contributors that my little essay might indeed be lost in the shuffle were it not such a work of diamantine brilliance. I'm talking about a Kickstarter from Chris McLaughlin's Ghost Show Press of an anthology called Transgressive Horror. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, gosh, more lists of horror movies. How can I sign up? Well, go to Kickstarter between now and May 27th. And search uh, Transgressive Horror, and there it will be. Each of the contributors, of which, as Robin has alluded, there are both many, and Stalwart are contributing an essay on a horror film that broke the rules. And so the thing is sort of a backwards look at the history of horror film, which is kind of interesting and fun in a lot of ways, over and above the qualities of the contributors. I myself will be discussing the terrific Ray Milland film, The Uninvited, which broke the rules of the ghost story. And as to how it did so, you either have to, I think, remember back to whichever segment it was we talked about that in, or, of course, back to Kickstarter and read the essay. So, everybody, hop on over, get another shot of essential horror, and uh, we will then uh, wend our way back into the regular order of this podcast. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, uh, it looks like the miniatures are all huddled up at uh, a, a turning point in the dungeon, perhaps. The dice are inconclusive, something like a 10 or a 12, perhaps. And, uh, well, fortunately, we got plenty of Doritos because it looks like we're settled in for a chat. Robin, the players are disagreeing, and that means that we should weigh in on how to talk the players, which is to say the fellow players, not as the GM, into going along with what it is you want to do and how to present it in a way that both preserves game utility and also the tattered remnants of your friendship. Right, Robin? Yes, because we often think of getting the players out of a deadlock as a GM problem. But if you are a player, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) You have agency, uh, not just as a character, but as a person. And uh, so we're here to give you uh, tips to uh, break those deadlocks and convince the other players to A, do something, and B, do the something that you want to do. So I guess the first part of that is to have a plan yourself, is to have an idea of what you can do. And that seems like an obvious point, Ken, but often uh, when I have seen uh, players stuck for what to do, that is part of the problem is that nobody has a strong idea uh, of what to do. So how do you, first of all, assuming you don't have one, which maybe you don't, 
how do you develop one? Well, first of all, you look at the situation, and I think a useful thing to do, well, there's a caveat. Should I do the caveat? The caveat is you need to know a bit about your GM style and what is possibly going to work in their causative universe. Um, so assuming that you yeah, have which is a something you should that, know regardless, ideally. Right, because yeah. your plan is going to fail <laughs> if you don't do that, let alone yeah. you're not even going to get to the point of, you know, you, you'll convince everybody and then your plan will fail. So you can ask yourself the question, for example, in, in one of my games is, what would characters do in this genre that might possibly succeed? Because guess what? The GM wants you to do something. The GM wants you to succeed. And if you are breaking a deadlock and you're being the player who uh, organizes things and makes stuff happen, you are the friend to the GM and the GM is not going to punish you cruelly. Now, if you have one of those GMs who punishes you for taking risks, get a new GM. That would be my guess. Or take them yeah. aside and say, do you realize you're punishing us for doing interesting things? So that's step one. Know something that you want to do. Envision, envision you be, your characters doing something that might be successful. And Ken, what, what is step two then in selling that, pitching that to the other players? Step two is finding the player who is either the biggest deadlock on, let's call it the other side or the rock of support of this, of that second biggest player and offering them a crucial starring spotlight role in doing whatever it is you want to do. Remember the game is collaborative. The game is not about you, the one player, the game is about all the players. And so when you've envisioned uh, the outcome that you want, the direction that you want to go, that was you being smart and clever and fun and interesting. Now yield some of that smartness, funness, cleverness, interestingness to another player. And then you have suddenly a team that wants to do something. And if you've cleverly selected your uh, your second player to offer that to, then you've uh, steamrolled the opposition and can go merrily off in the direction of interesting as opposed to staying here in the cavern of boring. Right. And part of that is about being confident because a group of players that can't figure what to do are looking for a leadership. So if you sort of quietly lay things out as if they're going to succeed, you're doing their work for them by envisioning a series of uh, steps that you could take. And without seeming too dominant, uh, often I've seen groups that work really well and don't have planning problems. Often there's a the person who is leading is leading from behind. They're very subtly putting everybody in order and or they just sort of conclude the meeting. Go, right then, this is what we've decided, even though you haven't necessarily decided. So that, of course, is a skill that you can take uh, with you to the rest of your life as well. Is yeah. being persuasive yeah. in a group. Even if you're not Canadian. Even if you're not. Uh, and the uh, uh, person I'm thinking of is uh, uh, English, I think. Right. Hi, Lynn. Hope you're listening. And so the other thing, though, is to make sure that you're not pitching an idea that is meant to conflict with the other players, right? If you've got a deal breaker in it, for example, there's a paladin in your group and you want to have a plan that is sneaking up on the innocent civilians and slitting their throats because your character is uh, Wolverine with F20 stats, guess what? That is set out to have conflict in it. Now, possibly you can be both a loose cannon character and a unifying player, but you don't pitch the plan in order to have that conflict, which I guess brings us to another point, which is try to sell the character don't try to sell your fellow player because players who are often naysayers, uh, that is a part of who they are as people. That's part of their deal. And uh, in order to get around them, you might ask yourself, well, what does your character want? And you might actually verbalize that. It's like, so what do you need from a plan in order to say yes? What do you need in order to say yes? Which, of course, is a car salesman thing to say, because guess what? This is salesmanship. Yeah. And as is so much of, of interacting. And I think that to take some of the sting of salesmanship off it, you can, if you want, use your powers to figure out what someone else wants to do and be the second player who is supposed to be talked into it by that person. But if that person's not talking into anyone into anything, just agree with them and say, I think that Sarah's correct and we should do what Sarah wants because Sarah's made all these great points. And even if Sarah maybe hasn't made all those great points, you can just lay them out as though she has a, a version of, so we've all agreed. You can say, as Sarah has pointed out, blah, 
and uh, move things in the direction of another player. It's not all about getting your way necessarily. It's about getting things moving. And uh, there's no reason to uh, leave a good idea on the table, especially if it moves the game in the direction that you believe the GM will reward if you did not come up with it and Sarah or whoever did. So part of it is is uh, identifying where the opportunity exists to move the game along, which I think is more of a, a general rule that you should always be doing. But certainly at the moment of delay and disagreement, you know, you don't necessarily even have to have that vision. You can listen to the other people and have a vision of one of them being uh, either correct or mostly correct, or in the sense that that will be the thing that the GM will uh, enjoy and reward uh, as a result. Right. Right. Some very cleverly designed games have, little nuggets in them that explain why the characters are motivated to do interesting things instead of shooting down other people's plans. Uh, so, for example, Gumshoe has drives that explain why characters take risks and act like investigative characters in adventure or horror games. And uh, guess what? You can ask the other player, so what is your drive? What is it that motivates your character? And that will, A, as the rule is designed to do, remind the player that they are supposed to be doing things and that those things are supposed to be interesting and risky and will then enable you to pitch a way in which, because uh, this is a variant of that famous player roadblock technique. My character wouldn't do that. And so, and often my character wouldn't do that is directed at the GM and the premise for the uh, adventure. But here uh, it's directed at you, the other player. And so is that, Oh, so you're, Drive is ennui. Well, surely your uh, restless boredom that uh, causes you to uh, seek new experience, whatever the consequences, will eventually cause you to maybe you'll pace around for half an hour before finally agreeing. But surely you will agree to go and uh, we'll all get on the paragliders and go over the wall to uh, where the tentacle heads are, because that's just how you're made, right? And so you are giving them a convincing case that uh, you and the rules and the GM are all decided that, yes, you're going to uh, do something interesting and uh, and overcome the risk. And I guess this leads us to kind of break down the reasons other than just being enjoying putting up roadblocks, why people generally say no. One of them is they think the situation is too risky yep. and uh, they've probably been trained by early era GMs to be afraid mm -hmm. to do everything. And that's hard to unwind. And so you have to give a convincing reason why in this genre, you would be able to do this. And the other one, of course, uh, I've alluded to before, sort of the, the moral objection. And that's something where you're going to have to meet them at least part or if not all of the way. Yeah. Um, and within, I guess, as a subset of the moral objection, you can say, you can present the sort of my character wouldn't do X. Uh, people where even if it's not a moral objection, they have uh, immersed themselves in their character or, or immersed more specifically, they've immersed their fun in a specific portrayal of their character in such a way that their character would not enjoy doing why or would not even take part in doing why. And so therefore, you either have to figure out a way in which they can still be true to the core of their character and do what you want, or you have to uh, figure out a way in which you can do what they want, but point it towards what you want, which is, I guess, two uh, different flavors of the same soda pop. Right. And you would think an adequate answer to that would just be to say, well, what would your character do? Mm -hmm. But often there's a failure of imagination to go with the refusal to uh, do something. And so it's much more effective to say, but surely your character would get on the paraglider because of X, Y, or would they, you know, your character is going to get on the paraglider. Would they do it because of X or would they do it because of Y or, or, you know, you can even, you know, break the wall and step out of this and say, well, what version of this would your character agree to and try and get the player imagining a scenario in their head, uh, not the game scenario, but a situation that they can see themselves taking part in. And so that they're, instead of saying no, they're saying, Yes, but. Mm -hmm. And and yes, but is, of course, more than halfway to yes and. So there we are. I, I, I think that a lot of this uh, sort of 
interplay. It sounds sort of mechanical when we lay it out, but of course, this is what you do literally every day of your life when you're interacting with friends. And I think we can all remember back when we used to interact with our friends and we're going to do it again. Thanks to uh, good old MRNAs. But the, the point being that you do this when you pick a movie, you do this when you go out to dinner, you do this when you're deciding, you know, uh, what party to go to or whatever else. You did it when you were deciding what game to play. All of these are just basic human interaction questions at bottom. And so as you uh, alluded, Robin, you can always step out. You're, you're not trapped in the body of an elf. You can say, if we don't do this, uh, the GM is just going to keep throwing lizard people at us forever. They've demonstrated that. You know that uh, Janine loves it when we uh, do an interpersonal assault on a castle. Let's just do that. What would get your character to take part in that kind of engagement? And so you combine it, uh, like you say, with the, the, the offering your character a choice, but also with the out of character version of look, no one else wants to drive all the way across town to see the movie at that theater. Let's just meet downtown like we always do, right? Right. And another thing to do, if everybody is stumped and you are kind of stumped too, the thing to always do is go and get more information. So again, pose a question of what do we need to know that we don't know now in order to find a uh, course to move forward? And so, and guess what? Going and finding more information is an action. Uh, now, the players may prefer to do that as indirectly as they can uh, by looking things up on the internet or whatever, but at least it's something, right? It's that finding the ingredient that you need to create movement is essentially the way. Now, I guess we should address, we've assumed just a roadblock where you have a plan and everybody else is just shooting it down, but there's the other option of there's two possible plans. How do you get them to pick yours? And the temptation there would be to shoot down the other person's plan. But instead, you might look for a way to combine the two plans and look for the, the part of their plan that fits into, into theirs. Or you can sort of praise their plan and say, but how come? Or you can ask the other uh, person proposing the plan, well, that sounds really great, but I was hoping we could paraglide over the, uh, over the wall. How can we either do that? How can we fit that in? Or how can we do something kind of like that, that feels like paragliding off the wall, so that you are uh, asking the other player to collaborate with you and merging your plans rather than pitching on a competitive basis your plan against the other plan with the, all the other players as the arbiter. So that the answer, again, is make it more collaborative. Imagine something cool happening and describe that cool thing that combines your idea with theirs. And uh, as always, when you're having this discussion, the GM is not stone-faced. The GM will be giving you some sort of feedback, even if they're not directly saying things like, there's a big updraft on this side of the wall. Uh, paragliding might have a better chance of succeeding here than it did the last two times you tried it. Or saying, uh, you see the orcs or the lizard people preparing their paragliders shooting down ballista up on the battlements and trying to uh, nudge the players towards one thing or another. And of course, if the GM is giving you a level of uh, input that's that overt, just generally go along with the GM. That at least moves you out of your roadblock. And then um, you can bust out the paraglider when it comes time to escape from the castle or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, don't. Don't give up on your dreams of paragliding just because you can't get a majority of players and the GM to agree now. Just put that away as a thing to play towards another time or later on in the adventure even. Right. Speaking of paragliders, it's time for us to get in ours and paraglide over this commercial to whatever the segment waits for us on the other side. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers 
are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At PelgrainPress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. Mmm, the smell of slightly decaying paper and the sagging of the shelves tell us that we're once more in the book hut this time around at the uh, behest of beloved Patreon backer uh, Yuri Horneman. We are going to discuss Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, Yuri realized that uh, it took us many, many, many episodes until we uh, recently dropped uh, Wilson's name. And uh, he wondered uh, why we haven't talked about him before and what it is that we might have uh, to say about Wilson. And I'm afraid this is the point where, once again, I have to confess that the reason we haven't talked about him a lot is that uh, this is another cornerstone of Nerdlet that uh, I am not a huge uh, fan of. Uh, There was something about uh, the Illuminatus trilogy that always led me to, to pick something else instead. I had the suspicion that the narrative voice would be a merging of uh, Terry Pratchett and Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> and uh, so recently, when Yuri asked this, I said, okay, finally going to crack it. And it's like, oh, it is Terry Pratchett and Kurt Vonnegut, but oh, so much worse. And so, Ken, <laughs> how many pages do you think I got into the Illuminatus trilogy before I noped out? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember when the first adolescent sex scene is. I think it's actually a little late in the book. So I think maybe you noped out once it started changing, uh, viewpoints aggressively, which if I recall is around page 30 or 40. Three. Page three. Three. On the third iteration of the same poop joke. Three times. Uh Not funny poop joke. Right. Repeated two more times. I was out. It definitely had that. That was it. With of hippie counterculture, not funny comedy that, uh, that led me out. So Ken, presumably, uh, I can tell that you've gotten past page three. I have. So, uh, the rest of this segment's take on Robert Anton Wilson is going to be yours. So, uh, what is your perspective on Wilson? I mean, I hit Wilson at probably the best age to hit Wilson, which is freshman year in college. And everything you say about Wilson's writing is correct. And in fairness, uh, Wilson collaborated on the Illuminatus trilogy with Robert Shea. So Robert Shea takes some of the blame slash praise for the Illuminatus trilogy. But given the stuff that Wilson wrote on his own, I think that we can agree that much of the stuff that you disapproved of is also Wilson. But when you hit it at you know, age 19 or 18. First of all, poop jokes are funnier at that point. Second of all, you haven't run into a lot of this stuff before. And in this particular case, in my case, Wilson became an on-ramp to a lot of other ideas that I had only tangentially run into before. Um, obviously, I read Illuminatus because I was playing the game Illuminati uh, by Steve Jackson and having a great deal of fun with it. And so I was already interested in para-histories of all sorts, so I was reading my way through the bibliography of, of the game, and among that bibliography, of course, is Illuminatus, which at that time, and I think continually, is available not as the trilogy was originally published as, but as a large red book that looked perfectly ridiculous and perfectly suited my mood and metier uh, when I was 18. So, the, the novel itself is a layering of perspectives. The, the point if you can call a a lengthy adolescent joke a thing with a point, is that any given set of perspectives can be a window onto understanding the universe, but that the universe is inherently too complex and strange to be understood. And that is basically the philosophical underpinning of Illuminatus via, as I believe we've mentioned, poop jokes, adolescent sex scenes, and a great deal of uh, nonsense disguised as historical speculation, all of which I found fascinating in 18. And even now, I still enjoy the nonsense disguised as historical speculation, although I've moved on to both Wilson's sources and Wilson's heirs. But I think that even before I was reading Arthur Kessler, even before I was looking at questions of mind-body duality, uh, Wilson sort of 
prepared the ground for things like by association and things like treating your mind as a operating system, not even as the computer, and realizing that once you've assumed that, you can monkey with it to greater or lesser extent, either with drugs and alcohol, which is, of course, again, a thing that you do in college a great deal, but also in terms of inputting belief systems. And so even before I was reading Kessler on association, I was experimenting with some of the mental reprogramming that Wilson exhibits in Illuminatus and then talks about uh, more specifically in his book, Cosmic Trigger, The Final Secret of the Illuminati, which was a sort of Quester's memoir about Wilson's attempt to do that, which led him via witchcraft, uh, Wicca, Sufism, McKennaite hallucinogenic theology, and Crowley into uh, the discovery that if you did that too much, you could really screw yourself up. And uh, he escaped, as it turns out, thanks to our buddy, friend of the show, Jacques Vallée, who he was explaining that he'd seen alien dogs and he'd been hearing communications from Sirius and that he thought that maybe he was uh, losing his grip and going insane. And Vallée says, no, 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 you're not losing your grip. You're not going insane. This has happened to people for thousands of years. You have just encountered a human control structure that is somehow manipulating this technology. And so if you just understand that you are being manipulated, you know, you'll get out of it. And so Vali did not say, buck up, you're not having these experiences. He said, these experiences are being imposed on you, you know, walk it off, basically. And that did a great deal to help Wilson into the sort of amused paranoiac skepticism that became his default, that he understands that everything has a meaning, but as a skeptic, he doesn't believe in the meaning that it has. So he moves through into a sort of a weird agnosticism that becomes his psychological viewpoint. And that's basically the rest of his writing is some version of that. And I think Schrodinger's Cat, the trilogy that's sort of a science fiction trilogy. I read that because I was reading everything by Wilson. It's not particularly good. It's uh, Illuminatus, uh, but ungrounded, uh, if that makes any sense. And then the historical Illuminatus Chronicles and Mass of the Illuminati, which are historical novels set in the conspiratorial part of the Illuminatus universe, not the full on psychotropic part, uh, are actually, uh, kind of good. And I, I would probably reread them with, uh, with happiness today in a way that maybe I would not reread the Illuminatus trilogy as an older, less excitable person. So is, is the narrative voice there? You think I would have a shot at enjoying that? Or? I, I think that the intent to shock is less puerile and more interesting in, in that. I don't know that um, the actual, I mean, it's still Wilson's voice. So you would still have some, you know, uh, I think lingering flashbacks, but the, the jokes are somewhat more, I don't want to say elevated, but, but somewhat uh, less earthy in the way. And uh, many of the jokes are on Wilson himself a little bit as his characters are discovering things that Wilson has already discovered and abandoned. And so there's a degree of irony in those books that although Illuminatus trilogy is nothing but irony in this case, it's, it's damped down to just the, the regular amount of, of uh, autorial irony in a historical novel. Right. So basically what I'm hearing is that Wilson is to the world of conspiracy and an elliptony and the occult, uh, what the Blues Brothers uh, were to uh, blues music for a certain generation, that it's an entry point. And then from there, they still kind of have a fondness for that thing that uh, introduced you to uh, the world that they're referring to, but then you can move on to the, to the pure stuff, as it were. Yeah, I mean, and again, if you are 18 or know an 18-year-old who is into this, you may still enjoy it. I mean, part of it, I mean, I'm reading this in 1983, so I'm much closer to the mindset and gestalt of the 70s that uh, the Illuminatus trilogy is very much a product of. As uh, as Wilson has said, the 70s is when the people who made it through the 60s all went crazy anyway. So uh, there's a lot of that in it, and I don't know to what extent Today's 18-year-olds are as blissed out and as anarchic as the 18-year-olds in my generation were, but there's a degree to which it does act as that entry drug, like you say, and even more, 
I think even if you don't want to read Illuminatus, I would say give Cosmic Trigger a shot because that is, again, a very, a very generous exploration of Wilson's own intellectual, for lack of a better term, progress, for lack of a better term, through all of this. And it, you know, gives you the, the footnotes and is a more straight faced version of the same realization that Illuminatus does as basically an enormous, uh, joke. Right. Right. Well, I think we have uh, given everybody a grounding in uh, you and Wilson and therefore can enter into some sort of a conspiracy to get us across the river of this commercial to the segment that lies on the other side. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Swaddle us in the purple velvet pouch of financial support by joining such intoxicating Patreon backers as... Ludovic Shabbat. Monster Talk. Oren Gashuri. Thomas Edward. And Darren Dumay. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Gabriel Rossman asks Ken and Robin, The Bronfman Curse. In the Ira Einhorn episode, Ken mentions that Barbara Bronfman was Einhorn's patron. Claire Bronfman, Barbara's niece, was recently sentenced to almost seven years in prison for being the patron of a different mystical weirdo who abused women. And this, of course, is the NVIXM sex cult. Why this pattern? For libel purposes, we can consider a hypothetical billionaire family that came to North America around 1900 and derived their wealth from a vice industry. And we thank you, Gabriel Rossman, for being concerned that we might be sued by vindictive Canadian billionaires. <laughs> but uh, it is a matter of actual fact that Sam and Harry Bronfman built the family fortune as bootleggers. Well, okay, <laughs> Let, let's let's start. Uh, I'm going to have to do some, some light fun ruining here because... They weren't breaking real laws. They're just breaking American laws. They're just manufacturing alcohol in Canada for export, uh, which was perfectly legal here, yes. even during Canadian prohibition. Now, and they were and they were merely selling it to the Bonanno family, who, yeah. for all we know, might have been pouring it down the drain the instant they got into Vermont. Who can say? What happens in America is, is none of our concern up here. So, giant caveat is... Anyone who's explaining how prohibition worked in Canada and it takes under an hour, they're leaving stuff out. <laughs> so uh, Sam and Harry Bronfman, they're early movers in uh, getting people alcohol during prohibition because Canadian prohibition starts sooner and ends earlier. So it's extremely politically popular, especially in rural areas and the governments have to give in and get out of the way and, and accept that the voters want it. And in uh, certain places, particularly in Ontario, early on, there was a giant loophole. There was something. There, so prohibition was a, a patchwork full of weird loopholes, which Canadians will not recognize in anything familiar happening today. <laughs> and so in Ontario, it was illegal to purchase beer above 2.5% alcohol content or spirits from a source in Ontario for an early period of, of prohibition. And you were allowed to purchase wine the whole time. So was it even prohibition? 
But what you could also do is you could import for your own personal use. And then that ended, but you could still always import uh, if a doctor prescribed you whiskey or gin. <laughs> Best so, doctor ever. Exactly. Now, there was a doctor who prescribed bathing in it, but that, that was shut down. So, <laughs> so kind of think of the way that uh, medical marijuana is in California now, except you also had to assume you then had to order out of state. Quebec mm. always had more relaxed liquor laws because uh, prohibition was, uh, although they had a form of it for a while, prohibition was a Protestant deal. And so this brings us to Sam and Harry Bronfman in Yorkton, Saskatchewan, where they are running uh, hotels and they're also in the mail order booze business. And at this point, they take advantage of that whole booze prescription exception and they start the Canada Pure Drug Company. Because what is a purer drug than rum or whiskey or gin? And in fact, they are also supplying alcohol to the makers of patent medicines, which, uh, as you, as we might have discussed in a previous episode, at this point in history, are even more impactful than any liquor. So, like Lydia E. Pinkham's uh, vegetable compound for feminine complaints was 40 proof. Yeah. And was not illegal. It was the NyQuil of its day. Yes. Uh, I think it sorted all sorts of complaints, not just feminine complaints. Yeah. So they're serving the patent medicine industry. They're serving the mail order. And eventually, after Prohibition ends here, but not in the States, they acquire a prestigious existing distillery, Seagram's. Right. And I, I hear some of that alcohol wound up somewhere where it would violate the Volstead Act. I don't know about that. You don't know about that. You can't speak to that. I can't speak to that. And neither could they. I can speak to that, but I shan't because what I said at the beginning, Sam and Harry Bronfman are bootleggers remains correct. Anyways, they build a gigantic fortune on bootlegging and patent medicine legging and their heirs accumulate it. And uh, then after their, I guess their grandson, Edgar Jr., disaccumulates it by selling 25% of DuPont, which was something they'd accumulated during the accumulating phase, to get into Hollywood. Yes, this is the true occult, thelemite, Crowleyan act. The, the great <laughs> temptation is buying your way in to forcing musicians and filmmakers to listen to your notes. Right. This is the, the most sinister spiral of all. In, in this entire story. And Edgar Jr. did so and basically destroyed the ability of the Bronfman family to hold on to Seagram's. His uncle Charles uh, said at the time, it was a disaster. It is a disaster. It will be a disaster. It's a family tragedy. And Uncle Charles was correct because their alcohol is now owned by Diageo and their ginger ale is owned by Coca-Cola. The Seagram's just have big piles of uh, inherited cash but uh, they don't really have a industrial combine to make more of it, per se. Right. But as uh, you can perhaps adduce from the history of aristocrats everywhere, people who sit around not contributing anything on a big pile of cash get up to nonsense trouble. And among them uh, was Barbara Berwald, who was married into the Bronfman family and then patronized Ira Einhorn. But Claire and Sarah Bronfman were actual Bronfmans. They were the niece of Barbara and her husband, and they helped run the NVIXM cult. Claire ran it in a way in which she got indicted. Uh, Sarah merely has been sued and not indicted. And while we're on the topic of Bronfman's, possibly the least harmful Bronfman, certainly the least harmful cult Bronfman, is Jeffrey Bronfman, who is the second cousin of Claire, grandson of Harry, not from the Sam branch of the family. And uh, he was a uh, budding anthropologist. He went down to Brazil and discovered a church called O Centro Espirita Beneficiente Unhao do Vegetal, which is a church that uh, uses ayahuasca in its uh, ceremonies. And he he literally drank the tea and experienced enlightenment, as sometimes happens, and converted to that church, to the UDV, as they call them in Brazil, became a mestre, which is a priest in the UDV, and then went and opened the American branch of the UDV, and all hell broke loose because the FBI and DEA felt you should not be drinking ayahuasca and calling it church, and so they seized all the ayahuasca, and they did it, however, without 
taking into account that Jeffrey Bronfman had Bronfman money. And so he steadily sued everyone. And the Supreme Court in 2006 unanimously said, you can have an ayahuasca church. It's obviously a church. Second of all, no one would drink that on purpose. It's horrible. So Bronfman successfully fought for religious freedom in America while also being the head of an ayahuasca church. So good for you, Jeffrey Bronfman. This segment, while it is about weird Bronfmans, loves you less fond of the NVIXM cult and downright anti-Ira Einhorn. I think that's a fair statement, right, Robin? That is a fair statement. So part of the issue here is that the story as it exists is going to uh, get safety tooled out of your game of a lot of groups, so know (laughs) that uh, before going in. Secondly, the issue of how we fictionalize them, uh, you have to sort of be aware of their mythic status in the Canadian business scene, Canadians love the story that the scandalous Bronfen family and how, you know, they used to be bootleggers and then they became respectable in business until uh, Junior blew it all up. However, is there a note of anti-Semitism in the way that the uh, Bronfens have been regarded? Why can How dare you ask that question? Why? Uh, how dare I indeed? Yes. But even more scandalous is that the Bronfmans don't act like Canadian rich people whose mission is to be nearly invisible. Uh, like old school wasps, no matter when you got your money, uh, but they act like American rich people. And so I think essentially our assignment here, first of all, is we're looking at the way that, for example, succession takes the Murdochs and removes just as much detail so that you know it's not actually about the actual specific Murdochs, while it's also still about Fox and it's also still the Murdochs. So one thing that you can do, just as there are no Australians in succession, there could be no Canadians in your fictional version because they act like Americans anyway. You could do that. And it's not as though there's not a loose, condemnable American aristocracy that got its start in bootlegging and then blew it all up. Although in this case, it was with politics. Right. Um. (laughs) Now, of course, with that family, there's even more mythic luggage that you yes. would have to deal with. <laughs> and and I guess we can say, watch Winter Kills and get back to us. <laughs> yeah. And so, to my mind, while I'm still light fundraising, the thing that makes the Bronfmans seem like they have a curse is that they are, as you suggest, full of wealthy, idle, sort of lost people. And that profile is catnip to grifters and cultists and uh, many of the cults that we've talked about over, over the uh, years on this show, one of their main things about them is that they find rich people, often uh, rich women, but not always, in order to prey on. Because who's better to prey on if you're a grifter than someone who has a, a whole bunch of money? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would be tempted to go for something where it's a recurrent pattern, where it's not, it, it's not like, you know, the original brothers you know, kill somebody by the side of the road and they turn into a ghost who curses them from generation unto generation, but just that it's a thing that keeps happening to them because they are rich and lost. I mean, I think that you can, if you want to nerd trope it, you can absolutely have some supernatural connection. And I mean, again, there's a lot of Bronfmans. There's like three dozen Bronfmans and you know, the best will in the world, we found like five of them that were in any way nerd tropable. So, you know, as a percentage, that's not bad. So I think that first of all, if you're going to have pretend Bronfman's, some other family that, that blows up in Vermont or wherever uh, across the border as maple syrup entrepreneurs who get into sugary candy and then also make rum and become bootleggers and uh, blow it up. And there's a gigantic vice industry up there that they then foolishly uh, get involved with Hollywood and, and ruin. I think it's worth having some sort of weird activity uh, at the beginning of them. And it can easily be the two brothers kill a guy and a ghost. It can be that, you know, they dig up uh, the Oak Island pirate treasure and that's the basis of their thing. And so it's uh, the curse of uh, Sir Francis Drake or, or John D is messing with them. It could be that um, they've, they've dug up Mego metal. And so their, you know, t- their family tends to drift mythos directions, uh, all manner of things you can make as part of the sort of, 
original sin of the Bronfmans or your, your Vermontmans, I guess. And I, and I think that you should uh, lean into the sort of enormous family full of louche aristocrats who are all, as you say, prey for every sort of slick con artist, thug and cultist, but that part of the reason they're prey is because they've been magically sensitized to the sort of uh, woo that these cultists are also pitching. And then they use that and is an attempt to sort of claw their way back into cultural relevance. And in the same way that Edgar Jr., you know, tried to write music or that Sarah Bronfman basically got into NVIXM to meet the Dalai Lama, it seems. <laughs> so you have that possibility of, of this cursed family that is attempting to reach out and regain the power and relevance that their ancestors had. So uh, you can keep that sort of tragedy of waste, but I think adding more ghosts and more uh, weird heirs is good for the story, not bad for the story, because the player characters are going to have a hard enough time keeping track of the zillions of relatives without only three or four of them being weird cultists. Now, it may just be that because I'm deep into season one of Succession, I highly recommend, by the way, that I am thinking of this more as a, a drama system thing than an investigative game where the characters are coming in from the outside to do battle with the twisted side of the family, but rather that you are part of this family, you know that the, you have a, a fail son and fail daughter issue, and you know that people have been lured into cults in the past, and you see the pattern uh, repeating all over again. And uh, because the drama system, it's then up to the players to decide uh, whether there's a maple syrup ghost or this is just a thing that keeps happening to, to the family and that they're always being circled by uh, grifters and prophets and uh, and weirdos, and that's just part of the deal. And presumably here you're playing mostly white sheep of the family, and you're uh, trying to make sure that the uh, the weirdos don't blow up uh, the family and sell 25% of uh, DuPont. I think that you can also combine those two and play the white or gray sheep of the family who are realizing that their family is not just prey to uh, weirdo grifters because they're rich and stupid, but also because of the, there's a curse and because there is more. And maybe one of the members of the family was sort of drawn in, but rejected because they had just too much moral center or they weren't quite, you know, willing to, to do something awful. And so, you, you know, you're within the family, you're millionaires and billionaires, and you're investigating your, your relatives and, to some extent, you can't blow it up because that's bad for the whole family and your your mom will be mad at you. But also you kind of have to stop it because you can't let these uh, Crowleyan sex cults or whatever they are just uh, metastasize their way through your family tree. So I think uh, that gives people a, a lot of uh, different ways to uh, fictionalize this story as they want. And we can head into another hot indoor segment, which I'm sure is going to be perfectly normal and reassuring. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing there are many huts in ken and robin talk about stuff 
There are many segments, and some of them are mysterious, and some of them are sketchy. But the sketchiest of huts is so sketchy, it lacks a hut. It's only a corner, because we're once more can in the conspiracy corner. And this time around, we're going to talk about a conspiracy theory, which is to say a grift <laughs> that merges the legislative, the policy-based, and a whole bunch of serious weirdness. And this is the Nasara conspiracy, which first, I think, surfaced to a broader consciousness when Michael Moore's 9-11 movie came out and people showed up to pass out pamphlets to baffled uh, moviegoers that just said Nasara on them. And uh, it has something to do with someone who calls herself the Dove of Oneness. And uh, if that doesn't tingle your uh, sense trouble skill, I don't know what will. Can tell us about Nasara. All right. Uh, to tell us about Nasara, we have to go back to an even bigger scam, or a worse scam, a scammier scam, certainly, called the Omega Trust. And this was set up by a guy named Clyde Hood, who was from Mattoon, Illinois. And his scam was to go to mostly church groups. Now, is this the same Mattoon as in the Mad Gasser of Mattoon? The Mad Gasser. This is Mad Gasser home. The Mad Gasser has laid down his uh, gas gun and Clyde Hood has picked it up because he is metaphorically shooting gas in the faces of decent, good hearted people all over America. And he would go to church groups and he would say, I am a big time international banker like you hear about uh, on the news. And I am one of the eight people who can do foreign currency prime swap deals, or he would use other words just as cool. And they would say, well, those are big words that I have heard or read or heard someone else say. And, and then he would say, I have had a conversion. Jesus came to me and said, you are wasting your time making rich people rich. What you need to do is help the poor. And so if you give me money, I will be able to use my highfalutin banking powers to flip it over into enormous fortunes of money. And I will pay you back 50 fold from your original investment and with the profits from that investment. Just like Jesus would. Just like Jesus would. Just like the loaves and fishes except $20 bills. And with the profits of that, I will end world hunger or do whatever, right? I'll, I'll give money to the poor just like Jesus wants. And lots of people fell for the Omega Trust scam, sometimes over and over because you would, you would pay in and uh, he would say... Um, Great. Thank you so much. And he would say, well, I, I don't want to just buy one share. I want to buy two shares or, or 10 shares of the Omega Trust. And he'd say, well, all right, that's awfully good of you. Jesus is awfully happy. And he wound up bilking people out of somewhere around $20 million. Some estimates go as high as $50 million. The federal government found $13.8 million, but a lot of it had been turned into classic cars and Mattoon real estate and things that they couldn't find. So Clyde Hood is running this big scam. Now, I want you to put a pin in Clyde Hood because at the same time that this is happening, there is a Louisiana engineer named Harvey Francis Barnard who is noodling on the problems of uh, America, of the financial structure of America. He feels that it is unstable and bad and wrong. B badly engineered, even. Badly engineered. And he comes up, as many engineers have, with a solution to everything called the National Economic Stabilization and Recovery Act, or NASARA for short. And NASARA, in his hands, replaces the income tax with sales tax. It abolishes compound interest on secured loans. And, of course, because this is a crazy person, it replaces fiat currency with gold and silver. And he writes that all up in, in legislative format, sends it into Congress and sits back to wait for it to be passed because it's so self-evidently correct that they're just going to pass it in a week. Right. And, and returning to a uh, metal-based currency is, of course, a huge strain in fringe belief and, and culture. Right. I mean, it, it was even when we had a metal-based currency, changing the metal-based currency was a giant touchpoint in America. And certainly since 1933, when FDR made it illegal to own gold, and then in 73, when Nixon went off the gold standard, there has been nothing but sobbing and crying, demanding that we go back to gold. And a lot of those people are not just harmless engineers. A lot of them are very, very crazy. So anyway, Harvey Francis Barnard 
may have had other personal flaws, but he did not go out and scam anyone out of his money. He just said, well, I guess Congress is stupid. I guess I knew that. And he just released his proposal into the public and put it on the internet, which is where a woman named Candace Darlene Goodwin found it. Now, Candace Darlene Goodwin went to the Ramtha Center, the Ramtha School of Enlightenment in Yelm, Washington. She lived in Washington State. And she, although there is no paper trail that I have seen, she definitely bought two shares of Omega. She was sort of a, a fringely employed person. She managed to go bankrupt trying to be a computer consultant. But she did get involved in Omega and then began to pump up Omega, acting as a sort of volunteer gatherer of Omegans, to the extent that Yelm, Washington, became a core, one of the biggest per capita victims of the Omega Trust scam. And Washington State itself became, you know, even more than Illinois or California, a big uh, Omega Trust target. Right. And 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 uh, Glorantha fans... Uh, just assume I've made a Yelm joke. Right. Okay, can go on. All right. So, emerging from Ramtha, she now calls herself Shaney Candace Goodwin, and it is not established that the Ramtha people in charge, J.K. Wright, is a, a woman, were involved in laundering Omega cash, but they're a cult that talks to channeled aliens, so who knows what they were up to. But anyway, she becomes an avid internet spreader of the Omega gospel under the pseudonym, the internet handle Dove of Oneness. And uh, she starts doing that around 1998. This is around when the wheels are coming off for Clyde Hood. The feds are sniffing around. People are saying, weren't we supposed to get our money in 1996? And he's like, well, uh, there was a European bank that got wind of what we were doing. So we had to move it. And, and Clyde Hood gets indicted in 2000. And the Dove of Oneness, uh, Shaney Candace Goodwin, says, oh, this is going to be a problem. But she uh, looks around and she's already said things like, don't worry, the indictment is just the, the, the bad parts of the government trying to stop the, uh, the Omega from happening. There are good people in government. The white knights are fighting it. And oh, here it is, Nasara. This law, which in her version also abolishes credit card debt, abolishes all, you know, college debt and abolishes uh, lots of other stuff in that vein. The, the, this Nassara law was secretly passed and signed into uh, law by President Clinton, but the Supreme Court, those jerks, swore Congress to secrecy about it because they didn't want the economic uh, disruption to be too bad, and they were trying to figure out how to implement Nassara, and they're going to do it any minute right. now, so Nassara is a big deal. So they, they weren't opposed to secretly passing country-sweeping legislation. They just wanted to put the brakes on a little. Right. Yeah. Just, you know, wait until you can do it without dislocation. And that, you know, keeps people churning the Omega money. And then as the, the pressures are getting more and more and uh, Clyde Hood has now been indicted and is confessing to the, to the feds and people are hearing that Omega is a scam. Uh, she doubles down on Nasara and after nine 11 says, Oh, Guess where the servers were that had all the Nasara money information? They were in building two of the World Trade Center. So the Bush administration caused 9-11 to stop Nasara from happening. And now the white knights have to fight even harder and you have to pray and work and study and investigate. But what you don't do is write in and demand your money back from Omega because that'll get you on their list. And then they'll come kill you. So this is when uh, she moves from scammer to horrible, malicious, awful scammer in my book. And so she continues this. And the more you read about her activities on the Internet, the more you see this is basically and uh, you, you can't really assign a, a side to it, but. Wiping out all debt is, of course, another part of Christian eschatology. But in this particular case, it's sort of a left Christian eschatology. Um, but this is Q. This is basically Q. She even has like her uh, letter is O and she has number codes and things like that. And she's talking about secret sources in the government that are feeding her all the intel on Nasara and how you just wait. Everything's going to come out good. You've held the faith, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's basically Q for the uh, BBS era and then for the, the very early uh, web. 
and she is building this this cult, this body of uh, of belief, and in theory, maybe is even still building it out on the internet somewhere. Uh, although one assumes that uh, Nasara has been uh, eclipsed by its right wing cousin Q, and so the the interesting thing there is that what we thought of as this you know sort of unique phenomenon created by you know the the, the strains of of the Trump administration, well, it just turns out that it's it was it's an ongoing phenomenon on the internet, and if it hadn't right. been Q, it would have been O or P or L or some other letter, right? Because whoever wrote the the Q drops is clearly a student of every other conspiracy theory. Right. And, you know, mulches them all together. And the nature of conspiracy theory, of course, is that it starts with the demand for belief and then supplies a text uh, that answers the things that you want to believe. And how credible that is, is not an issue. Right. In fact, the, the more incredible it is, the more that it isolates you into a community of other believers, the more psychically powerful it is because that then allows because you've sacrificed something to believe sacrifice something and it means you can regularly get a beautiful hit of dopamine for re-believing in this thing that imposes difficult uh, faith demands on you but just as q adds a whole bunch of other strains of conspiracy theory there is as you've already alluded to a level of straight up elliptony that gets attached uh, to this so uh, there's a guy named Sheldon Nidal who fuses the good old-fashioned UFOs are about to reveal themselves any moment, long-running conspiracy with Nasara, and somehow gets implicates the, the poor aliens as being, you know, grifters involved in, in Nasara. Uh, there is someone else named Jennifer Lee who uh, attributes interdimensional beings. So we get the Jack Folie, John Keel, ultra-terrestrials in there. Apparently, they're helping with the PR launch, which is... You know, if you know anything about ultra-terrestrials, that's exactly the sort of thing they would get up to. And even Goodwin herself ropes in good old Saint Germain, the, the Comte de Saint Germain, who is apparently up in the etheric layer, is going to come down and help uh, manifest Nasara. So what appears on the initial surface to be uh, sort of financial, legislative in nature uh, becomes mystical once you scrub off even the, the merest uh, patina uh, and find the uh, fruit loopiness uh, beneath. And you can certainly see that the the religious call for debt relief, the Jubilee movement in America, again, goes way back. I mean, it goes back to at the very least the 19th century as part of the Grange movement and the uh, beginnings of populism. And I'm sure that it uh, had a well, pre-existing the salvation thing. people really want. Right. Well, I mean, it's it's much like um, uh, the buffalo will come back. Uh, in this case, your credit card debt will go away. It's 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 something that, you know, if God is going to make the world better, that's obviously got to be part of it. Yeah. So so debt forgiveness, the, the Christian Jubilee is uh, a huge part, uh, certainly of, of American eschatology, I guess is the, is the way to put it. And it, it definably goes back to the 1880s and 1890s and probably back to the 1830s when you had the uh, crash of 1837 and the first great wave of bankruptcies of American family farms. So you have this, this ongoing strain that gets tapped into and, uh, the aliens and the interdimensional beings and our old buddy space Jesus, Sananda, he's there. He comes in via the Ramtha cult, which worships, by the way, Ramtha, who is a Lemurian uh, king who fought against Atlantis, those jerks, uh, in 35,000 BC, and then uh, ascended in front of his army on the banks of the Indus River and watches over us today. Good old Ramtha. Well, I'm glad that, uh, like most role-playing fantasy worlds, it has an unnecessarily long chronology. It does. It has a lot of unnecessary stuff in it. Uh, Comte de Saint-Germain, of course, is because the Mount Shasta cult and the Church Universal Triumphant, which is a different, less left-wing branch of Christian eschatology, make Comte de Saint-Germain a big deal. So even if Duff of Oneness was not already Saint-Germain, it just you know, makes sense to draw him in, because if people say, well, what does the Count of Saint-Germain say about uh, Nasara? Then she's got to have an answer, and that's just going to come up when you're bringing up the White Knights who are fighting to make Nasara happen. Right, because as you pointed out many times, Plagiarism is uh, also an essential recurring element 
of uh, uh, woo-woo of all kinds. Right. It's it's very much about the marketing, right? It's, you know, can we get this? Can we add that? Can we make this a thing? And when you are a loose internet collective conspiracy like uh, O or Q, people bring things in and since they're volunteering to be part of the conspiracy, you can't say, no, there are no reptoids. Stop talking about reptoids. We're talking about serious things here on Q. You say, yeah, reptoids. I'll bet that's probably what the Clintons are up to. Right. Because there is an SRS strain that says that uh, George W. Bush is a reptoid. Because, again, exactly. if you're trying to grift people, you uh, you take advantage of the brand value that already exists. So if the reptoid right. stuff is out there. And uh, you've got some reptoid believers. You say, well, here, here's the thing you can invest in to fight the reptoids. Right. And you say, well, I don't know about the reptoids myself, but this is some very compelling information. Maybe you want to look into it. Just asking questions. The big conspiracy model, again, common to both O and Q. The same, you know, I did not tell you that uh, there's a bunch of Satanist pedophiles. You asked about Satanist pedophiles. And I said, who knows? Could be. Right. So scenario wise, this. Uh, feels like an outer shell that uh, will have uh, your game's brand of weirdness uh, underneath it. So uh, this could be a thing the Mego are up to. They've got heads in jars spouting all of the uh, latest updated uh, stuff to draw uh, victims toward them. Or the Esoterrorist could be leveraging this level of weird belief in order to uh, manifest demons from the uh, from the outer dark. Or vampires could be, you know, using these people as uh, patsies and, and cutouts and a, a source of uh, uh, Renfields. And, uh, of course, the King in Yellow, and this is normal now, these people clearly have read little bits and pieces of a certain decadent play, uh, perhaps mm-hmm. appearing as footnotes in a dry document about uh, debt relief. And so all of these things, just as they're all pluggable into uh, each other, are uh, pluggable into various horror and conspiracy concepts of our of our games. And you can certainly say that Nisara was something that was promulgated by the Congress in aftermath to undo the damage of the Castane economy. And then the secret Nisara somehow becomes present in the world of this is normal now that 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 legislation is a uh, is a carrier of Carcosa or a marker it's, for Carcosa. It's a reality leak. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, uh, one reality that uh, we're always faced with on this show is that we try to keep it to an hour. Once again, we may have failed. We may, may have gone over. May not have done that. But it will fail even harder if we keep talking, Ken. So uh, let's uh, get back in our paragliders and we'll paraglide all the way to next week when we'll have another episode uh, for you, our dear and faithful listeners. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Something something Fenord joins such beloved Patreon backers as... Patrick Joint. Phil Groff. Terry Robinson. Rich Spainauer. And Chris McLaren. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Inform the world of your top gumshoe ability with our latest feline design, Three Points in Computers. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.